Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 140 of the show featuring Dr. Glenn Richards. He's a vet. He's a lovely man. He's a mega entrepreneur. He's on Shark Tank. I'll tell you more about him in just a moment. This show is brought to you by the very, very good people like yourself who have supported this show at patreon.com slash Osher, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash O-S-H-E-R. For as little as five bucks a month, uh, of pledging towards this show, you can help me make a show each and every week, week and make a special show of exclusiveness that only you get to hear. So people for uh, only five bucks a month, you can support the show, help the show get to where every week and get access to exclusive episodes. The Cindy Gallup one most recently is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Um, if you can't afford to pledge any money, please don't. But if you can, and this show has moved you in any way, shape or form, um, please, for the cost of a fancy coffee, you can help this show come to air each month for only five bucks. Patreon.com slash Osher. The payments go through, I think, on the first of the month. And um, I'll put the exclusive episode up pretty, pretty soon after that. It's uh, the day after an election here in Australia. I'm recording this on a Sunday. We still don't have a, a, a government at this point. But any time that a country gets to... That's Frank. That's my dog. Anytime a country gets to change governments without a shot being fired or a tank being on the street or anyone getting hurt, it's a pretty amazing thing. And that's what's happening right now. So a lot of people may not be happy with the result of the election, but, you know, democracy, it works. And we're very lucky that it does so in this, in this very country. We have an interesting way of voting in Australia for the Senate, which is the upper house, um, where the bills pass in the lower house. They have to go through the upper house if they want to become law. Um, a lot of single-issue parties join the Senate, um, like the Cyclist Party, the Arts Party, and some of the super racist ones join as well, the Islam is Scary Parties. Pretty much, that's what they should call themselves. Um, but some of them got elected. And we woke up this morning seeing that, and it really kind of worried me, you know? My, my fiancé is half Chinese Fijian and half Indian Samoan. She isn't a whitey. And these are, you know, parties that spout hate and intolerance and just not good feelings towards anyone that's not white. And it's very much an election about white privilege and protection of white heteronormative privilege, um, this election that we just had. And, um, you know, while it does freak me out that these parties have got power now, I guess it gives us an option to defeat them with the opposite of what they peddle. They peddle fear, they peddle division. We can, I think the only way to combat it is with love, compassion and togetherness. And um, maybe this is an opportunity for us to, as a community, come together and say, look, there's no 
there's no time for this kind of ignorance. No time for your all caps Facebook repost of a repost of a lie, but it's fact because I saw it on the internet, anti-Islam bullshit. There's no time for that anymore. Life is way too short. We have a small country on a lot of land. There's a lot of room for everyone. Just, just be cool. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Um, but, yeah, we woke up this morning and we were, we were both kind of sad that that happened in parts of our country. People feel so scared that they decided to vote for the if you're not white, you're frightening party. Um, but I did remind Audrey that at the same time as that exists in the world, our beautiful, furry, cute, lovable puppy dog, Frank, exists in the world. And that it can't be all bad 100% of the time because, yes, they exist, but so does Frank. And um, it's nice to remember that. And that, uh, you know, it's kind of the reason why I got my guest in today. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Richards. Dr. Glenn Richards is a vet. He is an entrepreneurial mega success. Um, he is a founder and a co-founder of a massive retail operation called Pet Barn. Founder of the uh, incredible uh, Green Cross Veterinary uh, franchise system. Oh, it's not really franchises. We talk about that later. And he's also a shark on the Network 10 hit show Shark Tank, which was Dragon's Den in the UK and it's Shark Tank pretty much everywhere else. It's the one with the, the millionaires and they invest their own money in the business ideas. He's great on the show. And he's got an incredible story, a really incredible story about how he came to be where he is and how he learned the value of what it is to run a great business when he worked out on a remote, a remote property. Sheep and cattle, he uh, did 500 kilometres, I think, west of Rockhampton, long, long, long way out. Um, but he's also got some very powerful and very interesting views on euthanasia. As a vet, a companion animal vet, he's someone who has compassionately ended the life of thousands, he tells me, thousands of incredibly loved but suffering animals. And he and I start to discuss what it would mean for our society if we looked at people's suffering in a similar way. Now, if you're at all triggered by such a conversation, and it's totally okay if you would, it's a heavy deal. Uh, once you hear him and I start talking about the states that permit doctor-assisted death, uh, just skip ahead about seven and a half minutes and you'll emerge on the other side when we start talking about a train trip that he took. I won't give it away, but it's a good story. Um, this is also a great chat because I kind of got the feeling that Dr. Glenn and I sit on opposite sides of the political spectrum, yet... He and I found so many commonalities about so many things. I think it's important to remember in this world where our political parties are so ideologically divided, so completely divided to get their message across, that the reality is that most humans, most people in our society, we have one foot on either side of the middle. Way more in common than we think, to be honest. I'm so happy that Dr. Glenn made the time to come over to my house. He's an incredibly busy man. He's in charge of a, I think their current uh, market cap is around $800 million, Pet Barn. He's a, a force to be reckoned with. Lovely, lovely, lovely bloke. And if you've ever considered ever starting your own business, his story of his business plan, his story of how he made it work, his story of focusing on, on what he knew and filling a hole in the market that was otherwise unfilled, Nothing short of inspiring. I hope you enjoy it. This conversation with Dr. Glenn Richards. I hope the coffee's all right. The coffee's very good. Well That's done. good. Welcome, thank mate. Thank you. There's some cetaceans out there today. Well, I'm glad you're going to open that because I'm sitting in here. Yeah, yeah, look, beautiful sorry, day I had, out. A I had a migraine kicking in before, so I had to get, close all of But that, that is one of the 
quintessential runs that I do in Australia, the Bondi run to, uh, what is it, Tamarama, isn't it? Yeah. Just magnificent. Yeah. You so, can go all the way to Coogee, actually. It's uh, that's stunning. from this headland to the uh, uh, south headland of, a uh, north headland of Coogee yeah. uh, is 6K. Perfect. So that's a good run. It's 12 there and back. So do you run that? I did before I did my labrum in my left left hip. Did you? Yeah. Uh, but I'm like, racehorses, you can't just... No, get see you bye. I've got to slowly come back, but but that simply, it's, it's a stunning. You can't run. even believe it, you know. Like I, I lived out of Australia for a long time, yeah. and uh, as you know, you did as well. And then when you when you come back and you run that, you're like, this is actually in a city. Like yeah. this is a city that people can live in. It's not a resort. It's not a- <laughs> exactly. So so that one. And the Noosa Headland run. Have you oh, run around that, the point there? Around the point to, yeah. to Hell's Gate and it's just stunning. So you're running along, spotting dolphins, get out to Hell's Gate and you know, yeah. slip back in through the, the bush or come back. But So, so they, they're the two, my two yeah. favourite runs. in If you're doing something quintessential Australian, perfect. My, my word, I just apologise though. Frank is uh, exploring <laughs> his digging instincts. Uh, I don't know what he's digging for. Uh, he'll probably bury a bone under that carpet. Possibly. He's not vegan, is he? No, no, he's not. He's he's really not. But I will warn you, that pig toy over there. Yep. He's probably going to cough it while we talk. So, <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, I gave um, Alfie our little. Uh, so he's a um, Maltese cross cavoodle. Yeah. And it's this mop of just brown hair, uh-huh. and I found a. A, a, a stuffed moose and threw it at him and he started humping it in front of the kids and I went, oh, okay. So now he's down to killing it. So he's given up humping it. He's now... I don't know, Frankie, uh, he's got... There's, there's Humpy Pig, there's Humpy the Rhino, <laughs> there's Humpy Panda, but Monkey doesn't get any action because Monkey's not quite... It's not it, so he's worked it out. Monkey's not quite, doesn't have enough uh, girth. <laughs> anyway, welcome. Um, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are both in in, uh, in Sydney right now, but I do believe you're uh, from my neck of the woods, aren't you? Brisbane. Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Good part of the world. Um, what can I say? You know, you live in a place like Queensland. Uh, you might be rich, poor, or indifferent, but it's just a stunning place. I would often, in my time out of Australia, people would always ask, oh, where are you from, Sydney or Melbourne? I'm like, you only ask that because the only people you ever meet... Yeah. Came through Sydney or Melbourne, but I'm like, there is another city. Yeah. In fact, there's a whole southeast of about five million people, <laughs> and it, and you know, it's it's it, it's a little bit that laid back factor that comes out of uh, Queensland too. I I, yeah. I think, um, you know, come to Sydney, it's dog eat dog. It's very competitive. You go to Melbourne, it's it's stately and sweet, and a little bit condescending. <laughs> uh, yeah. Brisbane is still, I think, a little bit of a big country town. If you get to meet a local, then you're, you're settled. You know, you're, yeah, you're getting but there. a big country. It was a big country town most definitely when I left it in '98. Yeah, uh, and now I'm back there a lot. I'm doing uh, Hit 105 there at the moment in the breakfast radio, and um, but of course my family all still live there. And to Ginsburg, you're Brisbane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I came here when first moved to Adelaide, and then, yeah. then uh, Brisbane. Brisbane when we were I was. A kid, 79, I think it was, when we ended up there. Yep. Um, but, yeah, Brisbane's like, yes, we're a big country town, but, yeah, the traffic sucks, so we will actually build a tunnel. It's not kind of like Sydney where it's like, yeah, well, yeah, we'll see how we go. Like, they actually get the shit together. Oh, 
you know, and, and, and Campbell Newman, love, love him or hate him, he was incredibly pragmatic and just got, got things done. Got it done. So, so I live in Brookfield, which is about 22 kilometres oh, from the airport. Oh, Gap Creek Road. There you go. Yeah. So Gap Creek, so you can go from Brookfield to the airport, park the car and be walking in in 30 minutes. Just stunning. So Western Freeway, Legacy Way? Yeah. Leg- oh. so, yeah, Western Freeway, Legacy, inner city bypass, bang, bang, bang. Airport, airport link, done. So it's just a great outcome. Extraordinary. Yeah, I lived in uh, – I think the house that I lived in on Gap Creek Road, probably different from yours in that it was the house I lived in with most of the other blokes from my band. Gap oh, Creek Road was still not sealed at that point. So, uh, so which end of Gap Creek? Were you the Brookfield? Kenmore end. The Kenmore Were you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I run that a bit. So I, just before the reserve yeah. on the right-hand side – on Gap Creek Road. There's a big chain mail fence there now. 77 was the street it, number. It's probably, it's probably due to you they've got a, a huge big no chain doubt. mail. It smells a lot like... Try to lock people in. If it smells like bong water, that's yeah, the that'll house. Be it. Yeah, that'll, that'll be it. So there I, was a I horse in the backyard when I moved in there. I'll never figured out whose horse it was. <laughs> it's probably still there. There was a horse, so was we've a horse got, there. Well, we've got one of those. We, we, when we bought our house, there were two horses and we said to the lady, you know, give you 30 days to, to get your horses off. She disappeared. So... Unfortunately, one of them was sold. It died in situ, but the other one is still there. Just right. wanders around the paddock, and as a vet, I just haven't had the uh, sensitivity to, to to get rid of her. So. See, you can leave furniture from an ex-tenant out for council pickup, but you can't quite leave a horse. And that's what she's done. So I've inherited a <laughs> Winnie. We've called her Winnie, and and the only reason she's still alive is is um, I put out a bale of hay one day, and it was. Um, a bit too much grass and not enough loosen in the hay. So I'm walking back up and the other horses are all eating other than her. She bolts back up in front of me, cuts me off and looks me down, stares me down going, is that all you got? <laughs> so I've had to walk back down, find a bale of loosen hay, put it out and I went, okay, she's got some personality. <laughs> she, she, she's in. She can so stay. You, you, you grew up there? A um, place called Richmond, 300 miles or 500 kilometres west of Townsville, so outback Australia. That is outback. Seriously outback. Um, so our nearest neighbour was about 15 kilometres away. Uh, we had a sheep and cattle station. Um, so I grew up, went to the local school, which was uh, Pro Mum, 30-minute th- drive to the front gate. We'd get on the bus, um, which was a dirt road. It slowly got sealed over the years, but... It was always about an hour drive into the local primary school. So end of grade six, I said to my mum and dad, it's time to send me to boarding school. It's this, this drive every day was killing me. Um, so went to boarding school on the Gold Coast. Okay, so 30 minutes from the front door to the mailbox. Yeah. And then another half hour from the front gate to the, to the, to the local primary now, school. Wh- now, this is a time before mobile telephones. What, what kind of – that's some pretty – could possibly be dangerous isolation. What kind of communication did you have to the outside world on that so, station? So we had a, um, an old wind-up telephone. So it was called the party line. So it looked like a spindly pole with a bit of fencing wire strung between it. So they'd have these poles. Yeah, I remember them. The, yep. They just go to the horizon for yep. just days. So you get on the telephone and there'd be six other families on the phone. So you'd have to have a Morse code to know that was your phone to pick up. And you'd always know the neighbour was picking up and listening into you. You could hear them uh-huh. breathing on the other line. You, I know you're on the line, Mr Bucknell. We're, we're trying to talk here. <laughs> you hear this? Did you ever run into any uh, issues with the isolation out there? Oh, look, the 1974 floods was a big one. So huge. I think it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. There you go. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, unfortunately, just before it started raining, 
dad and mum had run down all our provisions, so we'd get provisions once a week going to town and get all our groceries. And um, they'd run it all down. We were due to go on holidays, and so we used to drive from uh, Richmond through the inland down to the Gold Coast for our our um, annual Christmas holiday yeah. and the rain started the day before we went to go um, so we had very little food um, so we had airdrops so we had aeroplanes flying over dropping food and wow. it wasn't too bad other than you're getting your rice mixed up with your flour that was when they drop you know just explode uh-huh. um, and the other fortunate part was that um, we used to have a lot of pet lambs that you'd they'd be orphan lambs you'd feed them up uh, and then you'd put them in the house paddock so the house paddock was about 100 acres anyway, so they're you know, pretty easy. That meant we were kept in, in uh, meat right through our right. Um, isolation. So we had to knock off poor old pet lambs <laughs> and put them on the table. 100 acre house paddock. Yeah, exactly. There's people listening overseas that can't quite fathom the kind of distances we're talking about. Uh, it, well, we had the, the family property, um, we had, had three properties, about 100,000 acres. We had 10,000 sheep, about 3,000 cattle. Um, and so as a kid, I grew up in the middle of the 1960s drought and as a four-year-old, I'd be sitting on a horse tailing out sheep, driving them to, uh, to places for adjustment. So, you know, I grew up with a big expectation as a kid that you contributed to the family, uh, yeah. uh, that your parents treated you as, a, as an equal from a very young age because you yeah. were doing physical work on the property, therefore your opinion counted so yeah. you know I look back and oh, go, right. if you if you want to uh, have a have an upbringing where you discover that when there's a problem that the only solution is you the one you're going to come up with it's a great it's a great right. apprenticeship and and that that sort of sets set me up for life Do you have too. other people from the community working on the we had property a, he had an old aboriginal guy yeah. peter keys uh, he was uh, arrived when I was 4 and um, uh, just a fabulous mentor. So between him and uh, my dad, sort of growing up, so he taught me how to fence, taught me how to pull a pull a motor apart. So he was, you know, very old and wise Aboriginal chap, and just a sweet fellow. Loved kids, so he'd sit there quite happily, and and you know he'd sit there looking at an ant trail and explaining what the ants were up to. So you'd sit there mesmerised with him for a good hour until Dad had come along and sort of give him a boot and say, "Come on, you know, you've got to work. <laughs> Can't keep entertaining the kids." Uh, but yeah, stunning, stunning uh, upbringing, yeah. and, a, and a very healthy respect for the Aboriginal community. The only fur- the furthest west I've been is Longreach. Yeah, that's there. getting out there. So you know what I'm talking. You know, you drive yeah. for miles, and it's completely S- flat. Stinks Could, like sulphur. Yeah, yeah. From, I, the, I, from the water. Yeah, that's the the artesian basin. Yeah, yeah. So they they pump it up. But one thing I'll never ever forget. I was 15 when I got out there. Stars, mate. Oh, you can see the sky. Stunning. Absolutely. St- stars like you can't even. Yeah. So there's no background lighting. It's just. No, like I just, my, I even want to, like, my eyes are misting up just thinking about it. You know, when I hear that Aboriginal astrology uh, isn't the points of light, like Western astrology, Aboriginal astrology is the, the dark spaces. And you look up at our city sky and you go like, well, how are you going to make a shape out of that? Yeah. If you go up there, there's less dark spaces. <laughs> it is just a And colour. Yeah. There's colour in the night sky out there. Oh, sensational. Uh, you're quite right. You know, the times you really notice the, uh, the stars was when you got bogged in the middle of the night coming home from a party. I still remember yeah. as, a, as an 18-year-old getting bogged wheels completely submerged in mud and, and having to walk home in pitch black yeah. where, you, where you could flat out seeing the edge of the road. So you're yeah. walking along. From the, starlight. 
yeah, just brilliant. But I still remember this this um, shooting star yeah. came flying out of nowhere. It must have been a meteor or a meteorite. And I've hit the deck, put my hands over my head, thinking I was about to be hit. It was that brilliant, you know, almost see through your hand from the light. Wow. And I thought I was dead. Uh, wow. Know, just, just amazing. So you went, to, you went to, was it TSS? TSS, yeah, yeah Gold okay. Coast. Southport School, which is a, a, a school that my school in Brisbane used to play rugby against. That's it. Uh, I so never where, pl- where'd you go to school? Uh, St. Joseph's Gregory Terrace. Yep. I never played rugby. I was the weird muso in the corner. <laughs> but we used to play soccer against TSS. Yep. We used to get down to that campus and go, wow, what a views. Yeah. Nice. It's a great, great outcome. Uh, Narang River, you've got a beautiful setting there. It was yeah. si- simply the best. That would have blown your mind a bit. I mean, you, I know you said you went down there for holidays and stuff, yeah. but to be – what's it like as a kid going from I am an independent person, I'm on the back of a horse, I'm, as you said, I'm contributing to work, therefore my voice has a say, even as a juvenile, even a kid under 10, to suddenly be in this disciplinary system. What was that like for you? Um, probably the unfortunate part is you generally – when you see a wrong, you generally speak up, <laughs> which didn't help. So you, you know, you take on take on the bullies and you take on the uh, the bullshit and, and give it back as quickly yeah. as quickly as it came at you. So, you know, I think that's because, as I said, you're used to being counted. So yeah, when you're a grade seven kid and there's grade twelves having a go at you, you always give it back. They yeah. respect the fact you're going to get the shit beaten out of you. Yeah. Um, but it was look stunning education. I'm very fortunate. And, and you I, wouldn't have been alone. There was, I remember at our school, at least, there was definitely some kids whose dads had humongous properties yeah. out west. So, so, so that was the interesting part, that the, the boarding community was made up of kids from Papua New Guinea, kids yeah. from, from outback Australia, and then that small number of kids that, that uh, their parents live around the corner and they just want to get them out of the house. <laughs> so, so it was always a bit, of, bit of, bit of a mix. But, look, it was... One of those things, you know, my wife has a go at me now that, that you know, I'm pretty emotionless, but you, you did learn to put up a bit of a shield and, <laughs> and uh, make sure that, you know, there's no vulnerabilities or weaknesses when you're in a boarding house. And, yeah. and, and you know, if someone came at you, you had to give it back, otherwise you're going to continue to get bullied. So, you know, those... It's are, a Shawshank Redemption, honey. It is, yeah. yeah. Those, who coped okay, those who coped okay with boarding school, I think, you know, didn't give it out but wouldn't take it. Yeah. You know, that's, so you just, just play a straight game and if you're reasonable at sport, you, you got on okay. Well, now I, I only know my particular school's experience, but there was an enormous pressure that you went to uni. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an interesting point you make because I was giving someone this lecture the other day and, and quite simply going to a school like the Southport School, um, there was a full expectation that I would go on to university. And, and I think that was part of the, the GPS system. Mm. The teachers all had a common view that you're going to spend this much on a kid's education, well, then you may as well continue that education process. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it wasn't for me, and there was no yeah. way I was ever going to achieve it. <laughs> and I always felt like a failure because I couldn't. Oh, really? Just, oh, yeah, I know. I never did it. Yeah, well, I, you know, my, my, my dad was absolutely sure I was going coming home to the family property and zero... University. Oh, really? You're going to finish high school and go back on the family property, and, right? And whereas my teachers were already infecting, and I guess my mum with, with the view that I need, that, that I should do some sort of education. And, and I remember about to uh, head off to University of Queensland. I'd made it into veterinary school. I had a year between um, school and university. I'd backpacked around Europe for six months, and then I'd gone home on the family property for eight months. And the day before, the night before, I was to drive off to take up this university. Uh, you know, have, have a lot of fun. I could hear my dad and mum having this argument, and my dad was going, "How can you do this to us? You know, what? Wh- why would he 
why would he make the decision to go? And yeah. Mum's going, you should be so proud of him. You know, yeah. look at what he's going to achieve. So or what tell he's me achieved. about, like, so you're in high school and then veterinary science was the... Uh, why, why that? Why was that? it like, oh, there's some at least I can give to the property or I can... It's a funny one because I've always been interested in business and growing up in a, in a household that was a small business, we always mm. discussed business at, at the dinner table. And my original plan at the start of grade 11 was to do accounting and, and I'm driving around with Dad um, around the family property. So you've got to remember, absolutely miles from anywhere, absolutely flat, and we're having this chat and he said, what, what are you going to do when you get to... To university, I said, I think I'll do accounting, Dad. He said, Why don't you do something useful? I said, What do you mean? <laughs> he said, uh, Well, you know, do veterinary science or something like that. I went, Oh, yeah, okay, I'll do veterinary science. That was it? That was it. I gave okay. it some thought and I went, He's actually right. Uh, I had to go back to school and change all my subjects so I could get into, into yeah. veterinary science. But he's right, you know, there's a definite profession and it might have linked in nicely if I'd end up back on the family property. Yeah. So that was always in the back of my head that, that, that I'd end up back at. Clarebro, which was our family station. Um, what changed it was every university holiday. I'd drive home about 20 hours. Mum and Dad would tag team and they'd go off on holidays for six weeks and leave me on the family property, <laughs> Pete, Pete and I, our Aboriginal, and, um, and they'd say, make it rain. So for five years straight, it didn't rain. Mm. And I went, you know what? This is a terrible business. If you cannot control one of your single biggest parameters on whether you live or die then it's not a great business to be in. And, right. that, and that, when I finished university, I said, Dad, I don't think I want to come home. If I can't control the water and the rain falling on the ground, then, you know, you can be the best manager in the world, but it's just going to take take your livelihood away from you. Yeah. That's when I headed off, um, the, did a couple of years as a uh, research master's and then went to London as a companion animal vet and right. decided that was where I was going to head. So just, just rewind just for a, a few seconds here. You did something that not a lot of people did. You're not too much older than I am. Not a lot of people, a lot of my people do it now, is to take that year off. Yep. Why would you say that's important to take that year off? And I still recommend it to my own kids. I've got a grade 11 and a grade 10 and a grade 3 but I still absolutely promote it, that you just clear your head. You know, we're going to live to 100. And I guess I was back in that day, just thought, there's no rush. You know, I'll have a year of, of uh, getting over school, so so to speak, clean, cleanse out the, the pipes, head over to Europe, spend some time at home with the family because you've got to remember boarding school, I'd been home three months a year yeah. for six years straight. So I didn't know my mum and dad that well yeah. because you, I thought I'd just spend some time uh, before hitting the next phase of my life and I still do it now, you know, moving from a, an executive role in Green Cross Limited to a non-exec and... I was taking a year off, a sabbatical, and it's yeah. healthy every so often, I think, to take that sabbatical, that time out, and just wake up and not be committed anywhere. So you're a kid and you've seen a bit of Australia, you've seen the Gold Coast, it's an odd place. Yeah. I grew up in Brisbane, <laughs> Very so odd. it's an odd place. And then you get off the plane in Europe. Actually, it was a stunning day. 5th of February, 19... Uh, 83 and it, and I got off my aunt collected me she said she where, she, where in the world Heathrow yeah so as a 17 year old I turned 18 in March it was a month before I turned 18 oh my god March passed my aunt straight past her and she didn't she thought this kid has too much confidence it's not my nephew and I've just walked past her 
and suddenly we realise, you know, it's, yeah. there's my aunt. Because my aunt lived in London. I, I um, hadn't seen her much. I think I'd seen her once in, in 17 years. And uh, so March passed her. But went back to her, her flat in um, Hampstead, Weesh Road, number 19, Weesh Road. And uh, the next morning we woke up and it had snowed overnight. And there is nothing more stunning than London in a sea of white. Had you been in the snow before? Uh, I had as a 16-year-old. been to Queensland, so I'd seen it once. Right. But, you know, to see it in an urban environment yeah. where, where all the streets were just yeah. full of snow and, we, you know, everyone was out because it wasn't that common to have London completely yeah. and utterly blanketed in snow and it just snowed the whole night. And uh, the way it was – still look back and it was myst- one of those mystical moments yeah. when you walk out, open the front door and the whole – you know, it's just um, unbelievable. Yeah. And so you're, you're – Wandering around Europe, yeah. Did I? Did you find what you were looking for, man? <laughs> I was trying hard. I can tell you, <laughs> I was trying very hard. The, uh, so I did a did did three treks. One one was uh, backpacking. Went and uh, connected up with my brother, who was um, a university student in Freiburg. Uh, went up through Scandinavia and back, and caught up with him. I'd run out of money, so begged some money off him, and so I was living on bread rolls and Vegemite. I had a jar of Vegemite with me, which was. Damn useful if you're an Australian traveller. And uh, you know, you'd buy bread rolls pretty cheap. So I think I was, I'd run out of money three days prior and was on uh, sleeping on the train to get all the way down to connect up with my brother. And he gave me enough dough to get, my, get me back to London. Uh, managed to convince my dad to wire a bit more money then did a, did a top-deck travel tour. The old uh, days, must have been just after Screw Turner had, had set up top-deck buses. And, uh, and then I um, went to stay, went to work on a, um, an estate in Scotland. And my mate from boarding school had been sent, he'd been to Gordonston, I think got expelled from Gordonston, got shot at, sent out to Australia to the colonials to try and sort him out. <laughs> and um, his dad owned a massive estate in uh, Ock McCoy Estate, just, just, near, uh, just north of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had three months working as a gamekeeper's assistant which was a, a bizarre experience, you know, looking after the pheasant, growing pheasants up and putting them into, um, putting the eggs into incubators and hatching out these little chicks, raising them and then throwing them out in the bush and the lead would come along with all his mates and blow them away. So, <laughs> so quite, a, quite a, you know, for a guy from the Australian bush, I couldn't quite work it out, but eventually years later realised it was an incredibly good business model. So they'd, you know, fly up with the lead in helicopters and have their shotguns and, you know, pay a lot of money to do it. Okay, <laughs> makes sense. My favourite story for that part of the world is because the Queen's got a house up there uh, in Scotland somewhere, right? Yes. And so Queen was out hiking with one of her royal guards about a year ago, year and a half ago now, I think. And some Americans are hiking on the side of this, you know, Monroe. There's the hills up there. They call them Monroes. And um, one of the uh, Americans goes... Hey, how are you doing? You know, they're walking through the, the moors and go, hey, how are you doing? She says, hey, yes, I'm good. Thank you very much. She goes, hey, apparently the queen lives around here. She says, oh, really? She goes, yeah, apparently the queen lives around here. Have you ever seen her? She says, no. Points at the guard and says, but he has. <laughs> uh, that's that. beautiful. Late and she's 80s. 89. Still 89. got it. Yeah, 89 years of age. See, that's where Prince Philip must have connected with her, that, that little interesting sense of humour. Uh, so, UQ. Yeah, University of Queensland, um, what, 88, arrived there, had a lot of fun. Yeah, so the Labor government just got in, so just ended Bjorki Peterson. Yep, that's yeah. correct. It was a wacky time to be in Queensland. Not a lot of people remember how odd Queensland was for a while there. Absolutely. And, and uh, in those days, um, 
sort of on the fringe of the Young Nationals. So I did go to a Young Nationals dinner uh-huh. and Joe came up and stood there having a good old yarn. Oh, you know. you were a farmer's son. You Absolutely. Were, you know, he expected you, that you would go you, along. You, 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 you do very well. Yeah. <laughs> he was very good. Yeah. Uh, so that was 88 he, he got knocked out of mm-hmm. government. Goss took uh, him out, yeah. Yeah, August 88. 88, 88, I remember There you it. go. And yeah. then Goss came and look, it was time. Yeah, I think any anyone who lasts that long it, it starts to build a... An unhealthy power base, so you know. I don't think it's it was bad. a bit odd. It was. Oh, more than odd. Yeah, that was yeah. the terrible. Certainly on the campus. The campus. I was. That's oh, what I was yeah. referring to. The politics on the campus yeah. were interesting at that they time. They were, and and I did sit in the senate or the uh, the equivalent of the students' politics for a while. Yeah, uh, it was a bit of fun. Um, quite bizarre because a lot of the labor guys all ended up. You know, in the labor movement, and, and became adults, and uh, still represent the state in, or in yeah. federal or state seats. Um, I always found that interesting. Like the, the people that we elect to represent us. Like I, there's there's guys that I knew at school who were. I was 15. I was like, I said, what did you do on the weekend? I went to a meeting with my dad. Yeah. What do you mean? It's like a young liberals meeting. It's like you're 15. Yeah. Take and, yourself and their, pretty seriously. And their dad was a staffer, and so, and now this person's now in Canberra. And, like, this is a kid who's never known what life is like not to be surrounded by people who have the same ideology. You, you know, I think, think you put your finger on a problem because Liberal and Labor are both grown-up career politicians. And you As see ki- that. From children, though. From children. So career politicians do bother me a lot um, because, you know, I think, you know, real-life experience goes a long way to having a balanced society. And if you've never existed outside the circles of those influence... Yeah, i.e. I'm having a hard time getting a job, it's okay, one of the blokes whose mates have... Yeah, that's true, you know, your network. We'll sort it out yep. or, you know, who am I going to get to do the conveyance here in my apartment? Oh, I'll get blah, 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 whose mates are lawyers, whose dads. Like if you've never existed outside of that, and like those privileges are wonderful, that's yeah. not, you know, they're great, you'll take advantage of them if they're at your service, but to have never actually gone, oh, how am I going to afford this or what am I going to do or I don't know who to call or I'm in trouble, I don't know what to do, how can you possibly govern people who... Are in that every day. I mean, that, yeah. you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a very very valid point, and and you see that right throughout Australia. The career politicians that are growing up in in uh, you know a protected environment, so to speak. That you know, yeah. get out there, have a crack at at, at life. Yeah, be it as an employee or as uh, you know trying to do a startup or a business and. Yeah. Some real life experience that then will add serious value back into our political system, and and it does irk me a lot. Yeah, which is why I'm stoked that James, who I used to work with on on Idol and Channel V, James is running up against Tony in Waringa. Is that right? Yeah, yeah there you go. James is going up against Tony. Uh, that's good. It's healthy to stir things well, up. I, you know, it's 22 years he's gone un, unchall, unopposed yep. in yep. that seat. Yep. And uh, the demographics changed underneath. His yeah, feet. he's he's a career politician. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. Love or hate him, Malcolm Turnbull does bring a lot more real life experience. Yeah. And, and he's had four careers. He yeah. has. And um, yeah. so I'm intrigued to see where he actually starts putting some work into making some some very important decisions. Well, the, and, tables, and, and the tables of Canberra quiver if he gets back in again because they he, will. He doesn't mind flipping a few tables out, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. But, you know, let's, let's, but what I'd love to see him is to get on and make, uh, get on and make some bloody decisions about yeah. things. Well, you know, even just yesterday, I mean, we're, we're recording this the day after the horrible tragedy in Orlando. Yes. There's a terrorist attack on a gay club. Yeah. And, you know, it's no secret. I don't have a, a lot of love for the LNP coalition. But 
John Howard, for me, forever will go down as one of the Absolutely. greatest Australians ever so that he took the guns off our streets. Absolutely. Saved our society. Absolutely. What, one from Touch Madness. One of, one of many good things he did. But, you know, you, you look at some of the great legacies, be it from the Liberal or the Labor, Labor side, you've got to applaud it. You know, oh. I, and I'm, I'm from the other side oh. going, you know what, Hawke-Keating era, they set up some platforms that that meant this country has withstood some incredible economic turbulences in this, in, 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 around the globe. To yeah. have that foresight in the early oh. 80s, though, to go, oh, we see how this is going to go, yeah. let's put this stuff in place now. Oh, stunning. And then 15, 20 years later, but, but they're we- not even in power when that stuff pays off. I think oh. that's the thing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You need to be brave enough Correct. to make a call Nation that's going to pay off bef- while you're well and truly gone. Absolutely, Osher, and, and that is my biggest concern with these three-year political terms with, with doorstop diplomacy going on, it's bullshit. We get back to some nation-building decision-making that says we're building for 20 to 30 years from now. End of story. Be it Keating and, and Hawke or, or a Johnny Howard, um, those guys yeah. were visionaries and, and made hard decisions uh, for the right reasons. And, you know, yeah. and, and you're quite right. Um, the the, the uh, getting guns off our streets is an over... I'm, I'm off the land. I can tell you, you don't need a semi-automatic rifle that's a three-four-three that can blow a hole through, you know, blow a chest out. You, you don't. You know, if you're serious about um, hunting as a farmer, then, you, you know, a triple-two will probably do enough work. Um, it just completely defies... I sit there... When I, I, I ski in America every year and I love having the debate on guns. Go, Colorado? Colorado, yeah. yeah. They and, love it up there. Stunning. And they do. They <laughs> shoot everything. I go, guys, explain it to me. Why do you need such a bullshit big gun mm. that is a semi-automatic or an automatic when if you're a good shot, you know... Is that not the sport of it, though? Is that not the sport? Like, would, if you really wanted sport, would you not go out there with the bolt-action... Or a bolt arrow, bow and arrow? Well, exactly. Bow and arrow, you probably don't get a quick enough kill as a vet. A bolt action, triple two, will do what you need it to do. Yeah, rather you know, than I, I've got I, 100 rounds 100 in my magazine. Boom, 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 boom. Just, <laughs> just you don't do that. You're, You're not even going to get a trophy out of it no, because it's going to be missing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't hang that on your wall. Exactly. You don't want to eat it. So, It'll so, be full of lead. So, so what that is is not finesse. That's testosterone. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we need more women in power. You know, call it as it is. Mother Nature says we can do things with finesse. When did you first, I mean, being of the land, you know, there's, 
you see, you do hear the stories about the great women who run the stations, yep. uh, but they are, you know, not as common as men who run stations. And certainly going to an all boys school, you're surrounded by men. When did you first realise, wow, things are different because a woman's in charge? I've got three sisters. All oh, right, there you go. <laughs> and look, quite simply, our workforce is old Peter. We used to call him Black or well, Dad because there's so many Peters in the neighbourhood. That was Black Peter. Yeah. So, and he, no offence to him no, at no. all. He just, yeah, on Pete. So Pete, my three sisters, my brother used to get hay fever, so he never came out. But it'd be my three sisters, myself, my mum, and my dad to do the mustering and all the put the put the branding through in the cattle yards or put the landmarking through in the sheep yards. So I grew up at a very young age respecting the fact my, my sisters worked alongside us. Um, though there was one spectacular blow up, I remember arguing with my sister over who got to ride the motorbike, and and dad said, "Well, Glenn, Glenn can ride it," and. She said, you wish I had a set of balls, don't you, <laughs> to my dad and uh, stormed off. So we lost a, a worker that day, but <laughs> it's just one of those things. I said, I can ride the motorbike better. That's why I'm going to ride it. She's a bit younger than me. But, um, no, the, the, look, the, the balance is very much about – and, and look, uh, having, having a veterinary group like Green Cross, we have um, – when, when we were just the veterinary group, we had 2,500 employees and so like 90% of them are women. So I, I've got this incredibly healthy respect of, of, of equality around, you know, it's not about brawn and testosterone. It's very much about bringing the, the smarts to the table and you'll work around any physical differences. It's just simple as that. I would be... I'm grateful for the day that I realised that I actually I'm quite bound to the... St- Stupid nature of my man-like decision-making process. Yeah, and like, why did this work out so badly? What happened? Oh, because I was. Yeah. I thought I'd just like go at it like a butting ram. Yeah. With my head, yeah, just try and smash through it, rather than seeing a, a woman's way of getting around. It was like everybody walked away thinking they won. How yeah. can I not do that? Yeah, <laughs> your nads got in the way of your your brain. That's the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still remember my, my, my lecturer from university said the, uh, the, the, for, for a, a ram, you know, the, uh, the body's a life support system for the testicles. That's, that's it. <laughs> and that's what a lot of blokes, especially guys that want to carry guns and, and uh, just defies logic. Yeah. You can't, you can't convince me. And I've done a lot of hunting because we used to feral animal control, a lot of, lot of pigs and dingoes because um, we had sheep as well. Yeah. Um, just need a decent-sized rifle with a bolt action to do what you need to do. Right. So when you got back from the you, – when you got to the UK, why – I mean, you would have seen that a vet working at the kind of scale that a commercial, you know, cattle or sheep station yep. needs. There's some money to be made there. Yep. Why did you go companion animals? Yeah, good question. I, I Because I grew up in western Queensland where – Graziers and farmers really never valued the input of the local vet. And, and uh, I worked out pretty quickly that they weren't going to pay anyone, be it from a production base or be it from an animal emergency point of view. They just weren't going to pay any money for a vet to be involved in the productivity of the, of the farm. Um, and the smartest decision I made was to go into companion animals where I could see the, the progression of things back in, in the, um, the late 80s, early 90s, that the, the, the family pet was moving from the... And this was confirmed when I was in England. The, the pet was moving from the backyard into the bedroom and therefore uh, 
that meant the humanisation or the pet had become an integral family member, you know, like Frank, that you will make decisions based on the fact you have an emotional bond and not around the financial uh, issues going on. Yeah. There. Okay, there, there is a ceiling that you'll get to, but the ceiling will be based around the likely outcomes. And so a good vet will tell you exactly what has to be done, why they have to do it, and the cost associated. Um, and a person that is bonded to their pet as though it was a family member has a much higher threshold and will spend money on their pets um, as though it is a family member. And the vet's job then is to make sure they do a 110% conscientious effort to, to keep that pet healthy or make it better. Have you thought much about what is it about us as a species? I mean, I... I do, I do like to scuba dive quite a bit. Yep. And one of the things I love about scuba diving is observing the symbiotic relationships that exist yep. on the reef. Uh, for example, you sit at a feeding station, you just sit for a little bit and you'll see a groper just pull up and then 10 fish will dive into its gills and eat all the bits and pieces off its gills and he can't live without them and they can't live without him, but he doesn't keep them as pets. Yep. He doesn't, but we are the only species on earth that selectively breeds for our desires, size, aggression, whatever, other animals. Have you ever had to think about why we do that so much? Look, at the end of the day, I, I can see modern society, but you go way back and, and, and domestication of, of animals and specifically the pet market. So, you know, we understand cattle and sheep and horses and, mm. and the importance that they fill uh, in society, but it's about relationships. And, and cats and dogs have grown up having a, a you know, you, you, you know, Frankie, He's, he's going to turn up and, and sit beside you and just be comforted that, you know, you've been the alpha male in the household. He's going to be comforted whether you want to take that, that role or not. Your fiancé might, might want to sort of challenge you over oh, who Gigi the alpha leader. Gigi would probably do as well. She, <laughs> she would be upset. Yeah, the alpha leader. Uh, but quite simply, dogs like that companionship, as do you. You know, I've got a Bernese mountain dog as well as the Maltese cross and he will move around and keep an eye on me and sit there watching me the whole time because of our relationship. It's good. It's what it is. I think I'm very comforted by the fact that that's where society's at with, with, with uh, dogs and cats. You know, cats will come up and sit on your lap and gives a great feeling of, of um, be it safety or simply companionship. What's the uh, science say about health outcomes for people who have that? pet relationship in their house versus those who don't? Um, I could save the Australian health budget a lot of money by having more pets in society because people tend to be healthier, they walk their dogs, they're they, you know, feeling a better well-being, a better emotional being, better mental health through having companions. And, and uh, there are plenty of papers, I won't even start citing them, but there are plenty of papers out there about the importance of pets and how people live longer and they live happier through, through owning a pet down to the, the, the best journal article I read was a goldfish versus a plant. And the people, all the oldies that had goldfish actually lived longer and felt a, a greater sense of happiness than those that owned the plant, which were actually better than those who didn't have anything. So, you know, there is plenty of endorphins and chemical releases related to that feeling of, of you know, you know, it's pet comes in, you're releasing chemicals that make you feel better, which also make you live longer, live happier. And live healthier. And there it is. There you go. Because we've got the other room. There's Captain Speedy's in the other room. Captain Speedy's a fish about that big. There you go. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> pretends to play dead. He lies on the floor of the tank. I'm like, what are you doing? And yeah, you just get, get a reaction from you. Yeah. yeah. He does care about me. Yeah. As a, I've always wondered, where are, the, where are the edges of companion vet, companion animal vet species ability? Like at what point do you go, oh, 
I'm pretty. I'm not that great with invertebrates. Like, at what point do uh, you? <laughs> that's a that's a fair question. Um, and I've got a couple of mates that are vets that just love playing in reptile spaces and fish pets. But you know, it's it's one of those things. I think it's simply having a respect that 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 pet means something to the the, yeah. cli- the client, and you respect that client animal bond. Yeah. Do whatever it takes and offer whatever it's needed. You decide whether you want to go all the way down that journey. Yeah, so, but uh, you have. The power that we some three countries in the world have it: Netherlands, Belgium, yeah, and I think uh, Switzerland. In, Switzerland, as well as there's one in the states. Ah, oh, yeah, it Oregon. is too. Yeah, Oregon. Oregon have voluntary euthanasia, euthanasia, but vets have always been able to do that. Yeah, and and I'm a absolutely strong proponent of it. Uh, uh, you know the. Um, Guy from Darwin, what's his name? Um, oh, uh, Nitschke. Nitschke. Yeah. Nitschke. Yep. Philip. Yeah. Philip Nitschke. Philip Nitschke. Um, you know, it's a no-brainer. If people are suffering, they can make a decision, and they're of sound mind to make that decision. For Christ's sake, let them. You know, it just defies logic. And and I would have, when I was an active vet and working in the consult room, you know, they'd bring their old pet in, and you say, look, you know, we can watch this go on or we can make a decision now that's not about your feelings, it's actually about the pet and its welfare. And there must be that in human... You know, you watch people dying of, of debilitating diseases or cancer, that at some point they move to... It's just incredible, excruciating journey to the end. Why can't they put their hand up and say, I'm ready to tap out, and, and we facilitate that in a really, yeah. really, really humane way? As folks, both my folks being doctors, I mean, as uh, you would go around the, the paddock... Yep. A four-year-old, I would go on grand rounds with yep. my dad. Yep. And um, so I've been in hospitals all my life, uh, and I've I've seen people tubes coming out of every hole that there is. You wouldn't let an animal. No, you don't live like that. Yet people, and this person no longer has a choice. That's uh, the thing. That's and that's the tough. You like, wouldn't what? let an animal live like that. You know, if that was your family pet. It would have ended a long time ago. And, and, you, and you, you, know, you heard Muhammad Ali's daughter talking about her dad dying and said it was a great sense of relief mm. because she had watched him fight every day just to, to breathe. Mm. Um, and you get, you, know, you get into that position with, with society. I'm, I'm, you know, there's, I've got absolutely no concern about the rights and the ethics of, of someone. You know, if they're not of sound mind, that's a really hard place to be. But if they are able... To sign something and understand what is going on, then let them make that choice. Have you had a chat with your kids about it? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I can tell you, other members of my family uh, have made sure that that is what can happen to them. I'm going. Well, we're going to have to ship you, yeah, <laughs> off uh, out of this country for that to happen. But but look, it's. it's something I'm very passionate about um, and I probably should do a lot more talking about Oh, look, I've talked to Audrey about it. I'm like, look, give me the tontine treatment. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> don't even, like, yeah, if I can no longer make decisions and, you and know, I, there. if I can't feed myself and I can't make a decision about it... No. I don't be, want to... Be, be done with it. No, just <laughs> let, me not, let me not eat. Yeah. And, and look, I know, I know some doctors and some nurses do, you know, assist in that last couple of days, the reality is I'm thinking a couple of months prior to that point would have been the right thing to do. Yeah. It's one, I think uh, Denton has a great podcast about it, actually, if you've not listened to it. I haven't. It's extraordinary. He, yeah, he uh, speaks with a lot of people, particularly Australians, and um, they actually secure a, uh, a drug, which I'm 
possibly has been used in veterinary uh, purposes. Yeah. Um, but it's a powder mixed in, in, in liquid. And it's a powder because um, it doesn't require injection. It has to be drunk. Therefore, the person has to be sentient. The person has to be able to do it themselves. Yep. And their digestive system has to be working. So they have to be well enough that it's definitely, definitely their decision. Yeah, whereas, you know, the good old lethabarb, which is the, the, the drug of choice for euthanasias by, by uh, the local vets, it's one hand-brain pass. So the time you inject into the vein to the time it passes into the head, gone. And it's the most peaceful, beautiful way for an animal to go. And, you know, my view is plug it all in, put it on, chat away, say goodbye to everybody, then hit the button and gone oh i couldn't think of it i'd be like i would call everyone I'd say all right yep next saturday yeah we're having a chat come over I'll, I'll put the kettle on yes and then we'll have lunch and then after lunch it's gonna sit around and then that's what's gonna happen yep. and then you'll go out to dinner and then they'll, they'll take me off and they'll you know pop me on the fireplace and <laughs> <laughs> throw you off the balcony here also, You'd be surprised how many people um, get throw scattered. Throw off. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I bet it's a beautiful setting. Yeah. And, and the th- nice part about that, you know, lob the ashes out there. Then you come here and you sit there and, and that you're connected. That's always there. Yeah. Yeah, you see, you see, you see a lot, yeah. actually. So you would have had to face that. I mean, people may have had to put down – I'm sure everyone listening has put, uh, put down a pet once in their life at least. I've yeah. done it three or four times by now. You've done it hundreds of times. Thousands. Does it get easier? No, because – you are you, you have to be very professional. You have the conversation about is the pet ready in terms of are they sick enough and, and the welfare mm. compromised enough, and also work with the emotions of the of the client in front. And incredibly, uh, you know, it's it's a really sensitive part of your job to 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 walk them through the process and get them ready and and then because at that point you're a people doctor. Absolutely, you're yeah. managing you're managing. Um, their emotions and, and taking them through what is a pretty traumatic process. Yeah. But at the same time, good vets do it with great sensitivity and, and, and it's an important part of our job. Yeah. Um, and, and I can tell you, most vets get more flowers and chocolates and thank you cards due to very, very successful euthanasias, <laughs> which is a funny way to describe it, but in actual fact, it's, it's due to, you know, you've been connected with that, yeah. that person. You know, I, I started in Townsville in um, 1994 as a vet and I left in 2007, so, you know, 13 years. So I had a lot of puppies that had grown up into old dogs that I was euthanising or, you know, they'd been one or two oh, years. Yeah. So, so, you know, you start euthanising your old great patients that they come in and they get excited to see you because you've seen them yeah. you know, two or three times a year for and you know you always have a lot of fun and that's part of yeah. creating relationships so that gets hard you know that gets really hard when when you are emotionally connected yourself as a vet yeah. to that pet as well as to the person and, and uh, why don't we choose terrapins and things that live longer than humans why do we have to choose <laughs> things with such exactly. short life cycles There's this sped up metabolic rate of the local the local cane of canine or feline but you know probably my worst ever euthanasia of a pet was this this old guy came in with his cat and and it was in a box and it was breathing badly and i'm going yeah you know how can i help you and and i hadn't met him before and he said look um i'd been been on the the railway the burma railway during the second world war so a lot of my friends die my wife has has already passed on um this is my last companion in my life that i care about and I'm looking at this poor old cat that was just a feeble mess. And, and, and he said, can you put it to sleep and I'll be here with it? 
and, and I had tears rolling down my face. The nurse has got tears rolling down her face and he was crying. You know, guy, he said, I've never cried ever about all, the, all those mates on the Burma Railway. And then he burst into tears. So, no, a tough one. So, so there, you know, it, there's times you th- just think how important pets are in, in society yeah. today. They are core to the way we think about ourselves and they're core to our relationships. That's, that's why. And, and when you... Saw the when you were in London and you saw the uh, the movement, as you see, from the pet going from the backyard into the living room, into the bedroom. Yeah. When you came back to Townsville, at what point did you identify that, that there was an opportunity to, I guess, provide an altogether better service for pet owners and consolidate, as you did? Look, that's that's as I travel back from London, I wrote 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 my business plan for Green Cross on the Trans-Siberian Express and part of that was... As you do? As you do. It was seven days straight. It was white outside. There was a bunch of drunk Ukrainians to drink with, so I tried to divide my time between... Hang on, so you... From London to where? London to Beijing. So I landed in Moscow, got on the Trans-Siberian Express and and I'd done all this business reading before, you know, during my two years working as a companion animal vet in London and, and I decided... I'd write my business plan for a network of veterinary hospitals across Australia. And so I wrote the plan, what it was going to feel like, what it was going to look like, and a quarter of that was, was a, a high-quality standard of customer care and a high-quality standard of patient care, um, a network of hospitals with back-end corporate support for the local vet hospital. Um, that was all in my business plan. Spasiba. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd have to go out and drink a few yeah. vodkas and then come back and get, <laughs> work on Except the... Uh, the Ukrainian actually was pretty funny. Halfway through the trip, we were crossing over the border into China and uh, one of the Russians fell over between the between carriages and opened his head up. So he, he, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they came and got me up and I had a couple of Australian um, companions travelling with me and uh, we had to go down to the, this carriage and the guy's got a cut across his forehead, just open from his eye to his hairline. Well, they bleed too. Had blood everywhere, it's, Huge axe wound across his head, basically, and uh, so we had to hold him down while I stitched him up. So I had my little suture pack with me, but I had no local anaesthetic. So vodka. Well, he was pretty inebriated anyway, so I didn't think he needed much. So he's, and they're all ex-army boys. So the ex-army boy Ukrainians are sitting on him, holding him down. I've got the two Australian basically holding his head, and as the train rocked, I'd throw a stitch in. So sort of <laughs> one, two, stitch, one, two, stitch. <laughs> so we got to Beijing. He was so appreciative. He came, came and gave me a present and said, mate, you know, thank you in broken, broken English. Yeah. But this, you know, 22 stitches across his forehead. Wow. And, uh, but, you know, it did, it did create a good business plan about what I thought was needed in the Australian marketplace. That was a consistent quality of veterinary practice, a consistent service mentality around doing it better for the, for the, for the client. Um, and then what was really important was, you know, vets are very bad business people. What we needed was someone supporting the back end to make sure we could focus on the front end, which was clinical care and customer care. So it created yeah. – and it took a long time to execute that business plan. Because it's, a, I guess it's a little like pharmacy in, in that you have to go to university to be – you know, to be able to deliver it, but where you make your money is in the margins and you do have to kind of have some retail. I, I never knew what a margin was, I can tell you. Right. Yeah, 
you know, you don't. You get you grow up as a clinician primarily, yeah. and then at some point during your career, you got to learn business, to learn what a yeah. margin is, and, and learn what a profit is. So you had a very clear. You're lucky. Not a lot of oh, people yeah. have that clear idea, and you already have a definition of what success looked like. I think so. I, I had a view that it was a network of veterinary hospitals supported by a central corporate team in a franchise type model. So when we when we eventually launched Green Cross with some friends out of Brisbane, I was still Townsville based. It was a franchise-like model. So we, we actually owned our own practices and we created a co-op to provide back-end services. And that co-op then grew to a, a corporate um, business model where we were still focused on providing corporate support to the local vet. So the local vet, the local vet team always had to be relevant to the local community they served. So we made sure it was is a franchise-like model, uh-huh. and that and it worked. You know, we and so people who are already existing vets would go, well, you know what, I'm probably going to do better if I'm with this team. But basically, in those days when we were starting out, we couldn't convince any vet practice in Australia to pay us a franchise fee. So we decided the sim- simple thing was we'd buy out the old guy who wanted to retire. And that created a better business model. So we went looking for all the old vets, looking for a succession plan. We then bought their practice and asked them to stay on. And after a year or two, they go, well, do you still want me here? And I go, absolutely, we still want you here. They enjoyed the experience because they were then focused back on being clinicians and not worrying about HR, industrial relations, um, how to market their practice, how to recruit, you know, worrying about the education of the team. That, yeah. we, did, we did all that for them. So the practices performed better, yet we owned them outright. Yeah. So I would have liked to have done the franchise model, but you know, as a vet's a... We, we call them, you know, the Bachelor of Veterinary Science, bloody versatile science degree. They know everything. And so to try and convince them to pay me a fee to help manage them and optimise their practice was just never going to fly. So, so the best alternative was to find out all the old vets wanting to retire, <laughs> pay them a reasonably good fee for the goodwill they'd established over 20 or 30 years and then take over their practice and manage the practice. And that, that worked. So that's the basis of Green Cross. Fantastic. And at what point then did you go, you know what, I... There's another gap here. I might. <laughs> well, at the pet store one. Um, hey, Frank, what are you doing? What's he doing? Sorry, he's being annoying now. Hey, Frankie. What are you doing, Frank? Oh, you should get the two. There's three biscuits left. Oh, there, there you go. go. There you go. You can have. Got me caught out. So, so the pet store. So the pet store was an interesting one. What so did you see? What did you see that was missing there? Well, I'd seen. The evolution of pets at home in, in the UK, and, and I decided um, to open a, a new veterinary hospital in Townsville. And beside the 300 square metre space was a thousand square metres, and I decided we needed a large format pet store. And there was a little vet, a little pet store straight across the road who are clients of mine. So I wandered in to Tracy and Michael and said, "Hey guys, see that building across the road? I'm, I'm about to put a pet store there, and I don't want to frighten you or anything, but I'd like you to do it with me rather than to compete." And they said, yeah, love to. So next thing, we've opened one of the largest format pet stores in Australia. Um, and at about the same time, I bumped into uh, I had a weekend in the Hunter Valley with a mate of mine, Paul, Paul Wilson. And I said, what are you doing with your life, mate? And he said, well, I'm between gigs, looking for something to do. And I said, well, have a think about pet stores. I'm about to open one in Townsville. From what I can see, the margins are damn good. And there's a big gap here that, that you know, there's a lot of little funny pet store operators, but there's nothing that's coherent and, and, and really, you know, creates an exciting place for, for pet owners to come. Um, so next thing, we've opened our pet store, Paul's investigated the space and we've suddenly uh, bought out Pet Barn Sydney 
uh, and uh, those six pet stores were the basis for Pet Barn. And, you know, we rolled out uh, pet stores right across Australia. Um, Paul was focused on the pet stores. I did my job in the veterinary side and 10 years later we decided to merge it all together uh, into one big consolidated uh, integrated pet care model. And uh, so the rest is history. We've ended up as a, it's an 800 million market cap company with 200 pet stores, 150 vet hospitals and um, quite simply I think adds serious value to pet owners across Australia. Boy, look at you. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, and then bumped into Steve Baxter and, and Steve said, hey, what about a gig on Shark Tank? <laughs> I said, I'm trying to have a year off. I've gone from the executive role with Green Cross Limited, the founder there, I just, having a year off, mate, no, I'm not interested. And um, after a few bottles of red wine, he managed to convince <laughs> my, my wife and me that I should put my name forward and yeah. next thing they've, they've recruited me onto the Shark Tank. So well, I did tell and I did send you a text about this. As soon as I had your number, I text about this. Whatever training you're doing is extraordinary because every time I've gone to that one there in Bondi Junction, yep. they are nothing but fantastic. Yep. All right. And I've spent good. a lot of time in very, very similar business model Petco yep. over in the States. Yep. Spent a lot of time over there. I had a Labrador there for many, many years. And nowhere near it, mate. And it's a good point you make because we have studied the, the other pet chains right around the world and the Petco model we do love. But I think because we're more nimble, we're a bit younger, we've been a bit fresher with our store execution and absolutely really key to this, and, and Paul and I share this in both camps, the vet and pet camp, that people are all that matters. That if we get the right people with the right passion and then train them yeah. up, they're interested to be trained up to be you know, great retail staff or great veterinary, veterinary staff, um, it's easy. So, so you'll find all our pet owners, sorry, our, our employees are passionate pet lovers. Well, the, 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 the specific incident that I texted you right after, Franco, as you can see, he's a very long-haired young lad. We bought a set of clippers, not cheap, it's like 200 bucks yep. worth of clippers, which you need for a dog like that, right? So there's a lot of money for a set of clippers. Um, but we needed a bigger comb. And so Audrey says, we were across the street getting fish and chips. She said, go and get a bigger comb for Frank. So, okay. So I went across. So I need the biggest comb you got. So we've got a number eight. I was like, great. I'll take it. Walk back across. I've got a number. She goes, we've already got a number eight. So I walk back in three minutes after buying it. Yeah. And the same lady says, that's no problem. And she reversed it like that. Yeah. It, so she didn't she even should. blink. No, so she should. But which, which, which you expect that. Don't you? I mean, it wasn't even a hassle. The look on her face wasn't even, oh, my shift ends <laughs> in five minutes and you do this to me. No, I, it, I would be horrendously disappointed if, if your experience isn't positive. No, I mean, we, you can't, you know, you have, we have 5,000 employees in Green Cross Limited. We cannot control every single interaction, but we like to think through good recruitment, mm. passionate pet lovers that we recruit. That they give a damn about service in, in, in all camps. You... Um Write your business plan on the Trans-Siberian Railway, stitching up random Ukrainians' heads. <laughs> when you're there on Shark Tank yep. and you see people come in, you're like, I wrote mine half drunk while stitching people up in the middle of the winter. You couldn't write one? Do yeah. you get disappointed when people haven't thought it through? Absolutely, because there's the difference between having an entrepreneurial seizure or an inventor's nightmare. Because you see, you know, on Shark Tank, you see the mix. You see the entrepreneur having a seizure when they really can't execute a, a business plan or even think about writing one, and then you have the inventors, the, I call them the chief scientific officers, who turn up with an idea and wanting us to take it over and run with it. And I, the only way you can do that is t take it off them. And that's not really what we're about either. Yeah. Um, so you do get frustrated. They, they, 
which is my most common question you see me ask is, tell me about the next five years, what's, it, what's happening? That they've actually thought about the marketplace, they've thought about how to engage with the customer, what size market share, or, or not on a percentage basis, but how they're going to organically build up that business so that there is real numbers, real earnings coming out the bottom, yeah. as well as real re- revenue drive at the top. And that's when I get excited. I'm going there thinking about it. And, and, you know, I guess if I had to ask myself what space I love, it's scale up where they're actually just getting through that, that survival mode to ready to, to take on the world. And well, that's, that's, that's where I like to meet them. That's where you get serial entrepreneurs who just keep going. As soon as they yep. get to that scaling point, they're like, right, so let's start again. I'm yep. done with that. Exactly. That's, that's the exciting part. Whereas I love the scale up part where you yeah. go just hitting and now that needs to, to go, yeah. otherwise it blows up. Does it make you feel good about the country your kids are growing up into that? Because Gigi loves the show. Yep. Gigi loves it. Um, and she's 12. Does yep. it make you feel good about the country? Like we're eventually going to run out of things to dig out of the ground and sell. Yeah. Does it make you feel good about where our country's heading? Look, I, I'm, I'm pleased that the, the show's getting uh, resonating well with the public, that, that I'm amazed at the number of school kids that are now watching it as part of their economic class or part of their commerce classes. Um, that's exciting. So they're seeing real businesses and how they have to go about getting into a marketplace. Um, I love the idea that, that Labor and Liberal, but specifically right now we've got a, a, a Liberal government promoting innovations, but this, what, what, what you've got to do is go past innovation and go to entrepreneurship. When you take an idea, you need the entrepreneur who can pull it all together. The inventor, inventor can produce the idea, but you need to team up with the entrepreneur who can find the funding, assemble a team, put into the marketplace, get all those things happening, all, juggle all those balls to make that business successful. And it's interesting, sitting here today, two days ago in Monaco, the uh, world entrepreneur was, uh, was, was, was announced. An Australian, for the first time ever, has won the Entrepreneur Olympics, so to speak, the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year, Manny Storr. From, from Melbourne, he's uh, from Moose Enterprises and uh, his business is Toys. And he is simply an amazing character, an entrepreneur that has been where in the dark places of almost going out of business to hanging in there and taking it all the way. And you know, let's see, when, when are we gonna make the Australian of the Year an entrepreneur? You know, entrepreneurs add serious value to society. They create the jobs, they take an idea and actually execute it. They changed society. Well, they got given a bad name for a while there. When I was growing up, entrepreneur man, <laughs> a smiling man who'll take all your money and then run away to Mallorca. Yeah, that's right. That was due to one bloke, whereas the rest of us, <laughs> it's about creating commerce and creating uh, businesses that actually do change society. And uh, and you're right, that one one guy. Yeah. <laughs> Scase is who we're talking yeah, about. Christopher, Christopher Scase. Yeah. Christopher Scase. And, uh, there were there were plenty of the rat bags at the time where they you know sc- scrape money off investors and disappear. Whereas you know the, the good entrepreneurs know how to get the funding and add value to the shareholders, add value to the employees, add value to society in general. The society, yeah. yeah. And I think more and more of what I see as well, and and you know I wanted to get your take on this before we go. Um, I see more and more, particularly young entrepreneurs, their business model. There's a give involved in the business plan. Absolutely. And the give is, is integral to how the company works. Absolutely. And, and that's been a – I don't think it's been a major shift. You know, you, you look at Moose Enterprises and Manny Stewart. He's got his foundation. A big part of his, his workforce is about giving and giving time and money to, to uh, foundations or charitable or benevolent areas of society. Look, to me, that's, that's pretty 
common. You know, when you push an entrepreneur pretty hard, it's never about the money. It's about the passion for the journey and it's about creating something exciting and exceptional. And, and if it's just about the money, it's pretty hollow and boring, I can tell you. The money is a bonus that is actually there. But when you dig in, and that's, that probably bothers me a little bit about these bloody tech startups and exploration mining companies and, and uh, you know, the get-rich-quick guys yeah. that give us all a bad name, that, that they're on the fringe. The real parts of society is thinking way ahead and working out how to put a business plan in place and execute that business plan to get there. And, and that, to me, is, is uh, you know, the, the triple bottom line is always going to be there. What's, is, what's the benefit to society? What's the benefit to the employees? What's the benefit to the customer? And, you know, by the way, it, it's, it's never about the money. It is always about the passion. Couldn't think of a better way to get out. Thanks so much for coming over, mate. Thanks, Osha. Really appreciate the oh, chat. I'm just going to quickly take your photo, okay? Absolutely. All right. No, you look great. Don't worry. <laughs> that was Dr. Glenn Richards. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Glenn Richards. It's just his name on Twitter. Thank you so much to everybody that uh, supported the show through Patreon. You can donate, uh, not donate, you can pledge as little as five bucks a month and you'll get access to exclusive episodes of the show that only you get to hear because you are a patron of the show, patreon.com slash Osher. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, I've got a new business structure. I'm working with new management now to do some very, very interesting things with this show, this particular podcast. So, uh, watch this space, my friends. Big things afoot. Big things afoot. So, um, what am I going to do today? It's a it's a Sunday. I think um, we're going to take the kid and you're going to go see a movie because it's school holidays and um, she's going to be uh, away for a week. So I'm going to try and maximise some time with her before she jets. So uh, whatever you do for the rest of your day, thank you so much for giving me your time. Uh, I do not take it for granted that you spend your time with me each week. Until we talk next time, thanks heaps for listening. I love you. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.